Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard. I'm one of the pastors at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Thanks for joining me today as we look at the Bible to see what God has said from 1 Thessalonians. We in this series are following along with a schedule not made by me, not made by my church, but made by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This schedule uh, goes to the New Testament, and so while the Latter-day Saints are going to be reading our book this year, it's like, well, um, I'll just give you some thoughts from our side, a Bible church pastor coming alongside Latter-day Saints to say, here's what I believe about this, and uh, let me explain it to you from my perspective. That's what this is all about. So thanks for joining me. Uh, this week it is First and Second Thessalonians, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's both of those books together. We're just going to be looking at First Thessalonians. But wow, I mean, that's First and Second Thessalonians. That's eight chapters of a lot of stuff. So we're going to to look at mainly First Thessalonians one today, and see what it has to say. We'll actually start by reading that whole chapter. It's 10 verses and uh, breaking it down from there. So let's look. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake." Verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Very encouraging passage, very encouraging opening to a letter. Paul the Apostle is writing to these believers in the city of Thessalonica and uh, is just encouraging them, saying, you're doing great. Keep going. That's a theme that he has in his two letters to the Thessalonians. There is uh, some correction he has to provide along the way, perhaps most famously is in 2 Thessalonians 3, where we get that phrase, if a man is not willing to work, neither shall he eat. So that's interesting. You can check that out. But uh, for the most part, the Thessalonians are doing pretty good. They're, they're doing a good job uh, by living out their faith. They have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is affecting their lives. It's obvious, and Paul is, is just wanting to encourage them. Something to note, this is one of Paul's first letters that he has written. His very first letter 
it seems, was written to the Galatians. And if you remember the book of Galatians, or that letter written to the Galatians, it was full of all kinds of corrections because they were being led astray by false teachers. Not a super encouraging letter. He was saying over and over again how they needed to go back to the gospel, how they needed to uh, really re-examine the, the very basic message of Christianity and how people are made right with God. Over and over again, he was explaining to them that we are made right with God by faith, being justified by God, by having faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift of His grace. And uh, they had made it all about works because they were influenced by, by false teachers, and it was just a bad thing. Well, it appears as though this first letter to the Thessalonians was the next letter that Paul wrote. So in the New Testament, when you think of Paul's letters, you've got Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Well, chronologically, it's Galatians first, then 1 Thessalonians. And when he writes to them, he has a very different tone, he has a very different purpose, it's a very different church with very different people. And his first letter was very harsh in having to rebuke a church. This letter is much more friendly much more, uh, I don't know, welcoming, warm, fun. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem like there's like, a, you know, life or death on the line as it was with the Galatians. So it's much different. And uh, it's a very, like I said, friendly letter. And as we go back to this opening chapter to examine it, notice that he says that he is constantly, well, not just him, but at least the three of them, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, They are constantly giving thanks to God in prayer. So they are thanking God for this church when they pray to God because of His work. And he says, we're bearing in mind your work of faith. See, faith touches life. They had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was evidenced by their works, by the way they lived. Their work of faith and their labor of love. So love also touches life. You don't word, or you don't (laughs) word, you don't love in word only, that's what I meant to say, but you are to love in deed and in truth. 1 John 3 talks about that. And so uh, same with faith. You are not to have faith, period, but you are to have faith that is fruitful, that, that evidences itself through works. Okay, that's the fruit of faith. That doesn't change the gospel message. The gospel is by grace through faith. But that which is uh, not physical, that which is immaterial, faith and love, these uh, things that happen in our heart and in our mind, they touch the physical world. They touch the material world through our living. And so faith and love are made manifest through our labor, through our deeds. And he also mentions their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this was just a church that had this this faith in the gospel that was clearly evident. You know, there are sometimes you will interact with people who say that they have faith, that say they believe the gospel, that they are followers of Jesus, that they believe in Jesus, etc., etc. And it's just never really that clear. I mean... You aren't God. You can't, it's not even your job to try to do this, but I mean, you can't exalt them. You can't condemn them. You're not God. You're not the ultimate judge. However, you are to be discerning. 
And when a person makes claims like that, uh, sometimes it's clearly true and other times it's not so clear to whether or not that person is being truthful or not. So there are some people who say, yeah, I believe in the gospel. Yes, I love Jesus. But then their lives tell a different story. And those are difficult conversations to have. Those are difficult relationships to have. Well, with the Thessalonians, it wasn't difficult. Paul here writing to them says, it's clear. It's absolutely clear. He says that they know that they are beloved by God, this church, and that God had chosen them for salvation. That's what he's talking about here, salvation. And yes, God chooses some people for salvation, and he does not choose everybody. He chooses some people. We talked about that in uh, Romans a little bit, if you want to go back and listen to that. But he says, Paul says, that he has confidence in God's choice of this church. That the people, the individuals, the members that make up this local body, this local church, he has confidence that they've been chosen by God himself because of the evidence that has been uh, streaming out of their lives. The, the evidence of faith, the evidence of love, their endurance in hope. He says, when we delivered the gospel to you, see, we're talking about salvation here, our gospel did not come in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. There are times, and Paul certainly experienced this many times, there are times when you proclaim the gospel to somebody that Jesus died and rose again in their place for their sins, that they would be made right with God and have all of their sins forgiven if they believed in him. You give that message, and it's just word only. It comes to people as just words. It enters their their ear, their brain, just words. Well, Paul says that wasn't the case with you guys, but there was also power, and the gospel came in the Holy Spirit, And the gospel came with full conviction. What does this mean? It means that the Thessalonians experienced the power of God, which is the gospel, Romans 1.16. They experienced the power of God by believing in the gospel, by receiving the Holy Spirit, and by having this cemented conviction in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. It wasn't just words that were delivered to them. Yeah, take it or leave it. They left it. They moved on with their lives. That's what happens the majority of the time, the vast majority of the time when someone shares the gospel. But in this case, God used the efforts of the missionaries proclaiming the gospel to save these people. And a church was formed. A church was born in Thessalonica because they believed the gospel. And he goes on to say that not only did they have this experience of power in the Holy Spirit, but they became imitators, here in verse 6, they became imitators of those missionaries and of the Lord himself, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the word in difficult circumstances. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 17, where Paul and his companions, they go to Thessalonica, and there's a dust-up there 
People don't want the gospel to spread. There was persecution. There was much tribulation, as he says here. But they received the word in the midst of that tribulation with joy, and not just any joy, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit, who is God. God the Spirit, God himself, truly, fully God, was with them, causing them to have this conviction concerning the gospel and causing them to have joy in the gospel, even though all earthly signs pointed to danger, to fear, to anxiety, to nervousness. I mean, all those things. I mean, if you were looking at it from a humanly perspective, you would say, nope, turn around, make a U-turn, go, stop going down that road because we're receiving persecution. There's a lot of struggle, hardship, difficulty coming with this whole Jesus business. Let's call it quits and go back, take our ball and go home. Well, that didn't happen. They didn't do that. They pressed into the gospel. They kept living for Christ. They kept meeting as a church. They kept proclaiming the gospel. They kept doing all of these things because they had the power of God. They had the joy of God, the Holy Spirit working in their hearts and in their minds to cause them to be believers, people who would live for the Lord and all that they were doing. And in addition to all of that, it has been reported by people in Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia is still around, and so is Achaia, but you probably know Achaia better as Greece. That's what Paul had in mind. The people in Macedonia and Achaia witnessed this, their evidence of faith. They, they saw this in the lives of the Thessalonians. And they also saw, verse 9, that these Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. This is repentance. Repentance is a turning. It's a change of mind that results in a change of action. The Thessalonians had a change of mind concerning Jesus. They were now believers in the gospel. They had a change of mind concerning their idols. They no longer considered their idols to be objects of worship. They turned from their idols, and now they are servants of the true and living God. What an amazing evidence of God's work in their lives that they would drop the idols that they had in their hands in order to cling to the cross. And this type of repentance is essential. You can't cling to the cross with idols in your hands. You have to drop false gods in order to embrace the true God and that's what they did. What an amazing work of God in their lives that was evident to all that they turned from their dead idols to serve the living and true God. Amazing. And then the, the last verse of chapter 1 is just as amazing when the apostle goes on to say, not only are they serving him, the living and true God, but they're waiting for the return of his son. So, this is going to be a theme in these two books, First and Second Thessalonians, if you're reading them together this week. Serving and waiting. For some people in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, rather, for some of them, waiting for his son to return, waiting for the return of Jesus, meant not serving. Waiting for Jesus meant, oh, you just, I don't know, you check out and we twiddle our thumbs, 
we pray for Jesus to come back any day, and we sit in our living rooms knowing, knowing that he could come today, and so we just wait, and we look, and we wait, and we look, and we wait. And that's why Paul gets to that point where he says, uh, if you're not working, you're not going to eat. you got to be working. you got to be serving. If you claim the name of Jesus, that means you're a slave. Slaves don't get to sit in their living rooms and wait. Slaves got to work. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. Don't believe the people who say that, you know, the end time stuff has already started. He, he's going to say later in this letter, the day of the Lord has not come yet. So in the meantime, you work, get to work. You need to work. So you can serve while you wait. Very, very important. It, they're not mutually exclusive. But look at what he goes on to say there in verse 10. They're serving the living and true God. They're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. This is central to the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, and he names him by name. He says he raised him from the dead, that is Jesus. And what's Jesus going to do? For believers, he's going to rescue them from the wrath to come. Wow, we are waiting for Jesus, who's coming from heaven, who's going to rescue us from the wrath to come. Amazing stuff. What is this wrath? Well, this wrath is prophesied throughout the Old Testament, that there's going to be a day when God's wrath will be poured out on the face of the earth, his judgment against sin, his slaying of his enemies. Uh, There will be a, a great time of tribulation. It will be particular trouble for Jacob or Israel. That's why in... Jeremiah, he calls it a time of Jacob's trouble, though other nations will certainly be affected, and that's described through the Old Testament prophets. It's it's an hour of testing that comes upon the whole world, it says in Revelation chapter 3 in the message to the church of Philadelphia. There's this time of wrath, God's wrath, that's going to be unleashed on all of creation, with the exception of the church of Jesus. The church that Jesus has been building will not go through the wrath of God because Jesus, who builds the church, rescues the church from the wrath to come. He spares the church from the wrath of God. And that makes perfect logical sense, I would hope. God is not going to pour out his wrath on his church. But instead, his people will be spared, will be rescued from the wrath that is to come. And in these two letters to the Thessalonians, this wrath that is to come does get quite a bit of detail. The apostle shares information about this. Um, we could just jump to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and look at this briefly. When uh, Paul starts talking about some end times events, he talks about those who are already dead in Christ. And he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, This is in chapter 4, verse 13, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So he's explaining a little bit of what it'll look like when Jesus comes back, that those who have passed away, those who have died as believers in Jesus, they will be resurrected first, and they will go meet Jesus in the air. Then those who are alive at that time, who are believers in Jesus, will be caught up without dying, will just be caught up and go meet everyone in the air. And from there, according to Jesus in John 14, we will go to the Father's house, and in the Father's house are many dwelling places. But um, this is the detail that Paul starts to give them about the end times events and what it means that Jesus is going to rescue us from the wrath that is to come. He's going to descend. His people are going to ascend. They're going to have a meeting in the clouds before going back to the Father's house. He continues, though, this line of thinking whenever he says to them, uh, we'll all be caught up together and we should continually comfort one another with these words that we're going to be rescued from the wrath that is to come because we're going to be caught up with the Lord Jesus. Well, he continues in chapter 5 saying, As to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. And so, I mean, it's a pretty natural question when Paul writes and says, this is what's going to happen. Uh, Jesus is going to descend to the clouds, and all the believers in Jesus are going to be caught up into the clouds. It's natural for people to say, okay, now when's that going to happen? (laughs) Can you put put it on a timeline or give us something to look for so that we know that when... Uh, this happens, then that will follow. Well, Paul says, look, concerning the times, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. All right, so notice that Here, Paul is talking about this day of the Lord theme, which, again, this harkens back to the Old Testament prophets that I was mentioning earlier. If you did a study on the day of the Lord, you could see all kinds of interesting passages about this. In fact, just go to Bible Gateway, the website I use for this each week. Go to BibleGateway.com and search for day of the Lord. Put it in quotations, uh, open quotation, day of the Lord, close quotations, so it looks for that exact phrase. And search for it, and you'll see it all over the Old Testament. Well, this day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. And there is no warning before a thief comes. The whole point of a thief being a thief is that he catches people off guard. He surprises people. But Paul says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So here he's using third-person plural pronouns. The church, remember, is going to be caught up with the Lord in the air. The believers in Jesus are going to be rescued from the wrath to come. And so this wrath that is coming, otherwise known as the day of the Lord, is going to come upon the world, them, those outside of the church. That's the way Paul is describing this, that you can comfort one another because you are not going to go through the day of the Lord But for them, they're going to experience it. Well, let's keep reading. 
Verse 4, You, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Those two words we saw in chapter 1, faith, your work of faith, and labor of love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He also mentioned hope in that verse in chapter 1, the steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, hope. Verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build, one, build up one another, just as you are doing. Okay, look at verse 9 again. God has not destined us for wrath. This wrath that is coming is not for us. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. He died for us, Jesus did, so that we will always live together with him. We won't go through wrath. We are the bride of Christ. The church is. All believers in Jesus together make up the bride of Christ. And Jesus is not going to drag his bride through the wrath of God. He's going to rescue his bride from the wrath of God because she has been made pure and spotless, totally clean, and will always live together with him, spared from all condemnation, all judgment, and wrath as it pertains to salvation. Okay, so um, to sum it up then, what we've just seen in 1 Thessalonians is that there is salvation that comes through the power of God that imparts joy and endurance and faith and love. It's all in the gospel, believing in what Jesus has done in our place for our sins. And we can have assurance that God has actually delivered this salvation to us that he has chosen us for salvation because of the evidence of our lives, our work of faith, our labor of love, and the endurance of our hope that he works through us. It's evidence that he has chosen us and our repentance, that we would turn from idols to serve the living and true God, that we would turn from following any man as a prophet of God or anybody who claims to be a president of the church or anything like that. Those are idols. We would turn from those things and embrace Jesus Christ as God and Savior. And when we do that, when we have faith and we repent, and it's true faith and repentance as evidenced by the fruit that comes from it. We have this assurance, and, and it's not just assurance of salvation here and now, but we have assurance of salvation in the future, that we will not go through the wrath of God that will be poured out on the face of the earth, but that we will always be with the Lord. We will be caught up together with him when he returns to go to the Father's house while the wrath of God is poured out on the face of the earth. We are not destined for wrath, but we are destined to obtain full salvation. And this is a, an extreme comfort in a day and age in which we live where there's war and rumors of war, when there's all kinds of turmoil, when the culture doesn't know left from right or up from down, when, when good is evil and evil is good. We're not destined for all that. 
We are destined for salvation if we believe in the Lord Jesus. And I hope you have believed in the gospel. I hope you have fully, completely trusted in the finished work of Jesus, that you're not bringing anything into the gospel of your own doing, but that you believe in Jesus, the man who is God, who paid the price for your sins, that you would be made right with God once for all by his grace on the basis of faith. If you have any questions about that, would love to hear from you. But thanks for listening, and God bless.